Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. Today has been one of those days with my problems. Uh, It's so good to be together. Oh, Lord, how we need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. What a great thing to celebrate together. And it is good to be together. Summer as a pastor is really interesting. As you guys know, you're traveling and friends are traveling. And so some of you I haven't seen for weeks. It's great to have the Gwens back. It was fun to meet a new friend in Yemi visiting from North Carolina. It's fun to have the fridges back in town. and, And it's sad to have the Uh, goods out and others out, but that's just part of summer, and so summer's fun. I hope that you enjoyed our Cornerstone family time in between services to get to know someone, to hear more of their story, and get to connect. We've got a special week coming up in two weeks, and as I get started this morning, I want to put this on your radar. Two weeks from today, we're going to have some very special celebrations in baptism on Sunday, July 23rd. And so just make a plan to be here, if at all possible. It's going to be a really special morning as we celebrate with these believers their death in Christ and their new life in Christ. And I am so excited. You know, in conversations with those who will be celebrating here in a couple weeks that we'll be celebrating with, it's part of ongoing conversations I've gotten to have over the last couple of weeks. had one with a, a gentleman who said, hey, I'd like to know more about what it means to follow Christ. That's like a pastor's like goldmine right there. I love it when people ask those questions. I've had four or five conversations with people who said, and I really feel like God's put baptism on my heart, and I need to be obedient in that. What does that look like? And then I've had conversations with people saying, and I, I want to grow in my following of Christ and my understanding of his word. Church, that's the community we want to be, a community that's hungry for Christ, for his word, and to be obedient. And I know I'm not the only one who comes alive in those conversations. And so from our elders to our staff to our deacons, just know you are in a community of people who want to walk that journey with you, point you to Christ, and help you to follow him faithfully. Oh, and I talked long enough that my tablet went off. All right, ad-libbing will get you in trouble every time. There we go. Uh, So it is so good to be together and to connect more deeply. Well, I got a story to kick us off with this morning. Uh, Buoys, uh, you know, those things that float in water. For most of us, we have no idea what they mean. We know they have some significance, but unless you're a sailor, you probably pass them over or notice them and move on. The truth is, as a historian, I kind of geek out on this fact. They've been around probably since the Roman times, maybe even before. We have been figuring out ways to to navigate rivers and oceans successfully. Now, most buoys at sea are kind of like these buoys. They are visual guides of where boats should or should not go. For example, in a practice dating back to the 1800s, you'll notice in this picture that the buoys on the left, on the port side of the boat, are green. If you're navigating this river, you know to stay on the right side of those buoys to stay in an open, clear channel. These visual guides tell sailors where to go. Now, the problem is, and you may ask this question, it was asked a few hundred years ago, was, well, what happens in fog? What happens at night? What happens in the storm at sea when we can't visually see them or we're distracted by other things? Well, some very ingenious people in the 1800s thought, well, we have bells in churches, We've put bells on lighthouses. Why can't we put a bell on a buoy? And so in the mid-1800s, we did. Lieutenant Brown, an army officer, took a buoy at the time, fixed a 300-pound bell to the top of it, uh, engineered a channel in the bottom, and put a cannonball in it. 
And every time that buoy would rock, the cannonball would go back and forth, banging that bell. And all of a sudden, a buoy became more than just a visual sign. It became an auditory, audible warning. The beating of the waves and the wind brought out the music within that buoy bell. Truth, Church, the truth is that that is the same for us. How we respond in difficulty in the storms of life and in conflict should bring out the music of Christ in us. In our faith, when we face opposition and difficulty, the question is, do our lives ring out in the storms, or are we trying to silence that bell for all we can so we don't stand out in the crowd? Do our lives ring out with the joy of living in Christ, no matter the cost, no matter the the challenges we're facing, so that others might hear of God's good news in us in the midst of the storm? Well, in today's passage, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, if you want to make your way there, you can. Peter calls us to be buoys whose bells ring out, even when we face suffering, because of the living hope we have placed in Christ. So that's what we're looking at today. Before we do, would you pray with me for a second? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to be together today. We don't take our freedom to to gather together to worship lightly. We are so grateful. We know that brothers and sisters around the world, as we'll hear shortly, uh, are being persecuted for their faith, that they do not experience the freedom we have this morning. So, Lord, we pray that just because we can, that we would never take it for granted. That we can come to you and worship you. That we can come together as a family, as your children, and hear from you. That we might more faithfully live for you. That no matter what's going on in life, we would ring out for you and tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'd use this time in your word to do just that in our lives. That we might be faithful followers of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us since uh, probably, what, mid-April, the end of April, we've been walking through Peter's first letter. It was written to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's a geographic region about the size of North Texas. So imagine uh, somebody writing a letter to cities across North Texas, and it makes its way along I, not I-10 up there, I-20, is that the one up there? Along I-20, popping in and out of different cities. Peter's likely writing from Rome at the time, and it's a place where he will meet his end as a follower of Christ two to three years later after penning this letter. The overall theme of the letter is one of suffering as a Christ follower. He's writing to those who are finding it difficult to remain faithful as followers of Christ. Well, the overall purpose of the letter is to call Christians, that's you and I and the recipients of this letter, to live as God's people, and you might remember from verse 1 of the entire letter, as his exiles in a foreign land, to live faithfully in the midst of suffering in a way that not only is God glorified, but that beautiful phrase in chapter 3, that we might win some to Christ. Well, scholars have wrestled with how to structure Peter. He's not quite as structured as Paul or as clearly structured. So I have wrestled with what I think is a helpful structure. So if this helps you kind of remember where we've come, I wanted to share this with you. Part one of this letter is a focus on Christ's death, that that gives us our identity. You might remember I used to stand over here a lot in those sermons, that we have been made new in Christ, and this is the identity we live in. Because we are God's chosen people, his elect exiles through the blood of Christ, we live differently. We've been ransomed through his death. And our citizenship is with God, not with the city, the region, or the culture we might come from or spend time in. So in the midst of suffering, Paul writes in this first, or Peter, sorry, Peter writes in this first part of his letter, in the midst of suffering, your faith and hope 
are in God and what he did in Christ. All right, part two then is a focus on Christ's suffering that shows us how to endure suffering in a way that glorifies God. Our suffering as Christ followers may come, as we read, from unjust authorities. It might come from a government that does wrong. It might come from a boss that treats us wrong. It might come even from a spouse who's not walking with the Lord. And you remember those were three examples of a premise that's true of all of our lives. That we are not people who revile when we're reviled. We do not persecute when we're persecuted. Instead, we submit to those who are unjust over us, just as Christ did, because we too are called to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. So Christ's suffering shows us how to endure and live in this life. Part three of this letter was a focus then on Christ's victory, for it allows us not only to understand what has happened for us in this life, but it allows us to fix our eyes on the hope that is to come. Christ, who has given us new life, has brought us to God, has proclaimed victory already. And you might remember this really strange passage in chapter two or three. I might get this wrong off the top of my head. But anyways, where he talks about preaching to the spirits who are in prison. Right? You might remember that odd thing. It was this proclamation of victory, and that section of the letter ended with that Christ now sits at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. The result is that we can suffer in the midst of this life, for we know that regardless of the outcome of this immediate battle, we know that the war is won in Christ. And so then lately, we've turned to the last part of this letter, part four, where Peter is calling us to live as faithful Christ followers. Peter gets really practical here in this section of the letter, calling us to live for the will of God rather than for our flesh or our passions or desires. What makes us feel good? What stops the suffering? All of those things. And he says, as we'll see today, that we are called to love and serve God, and that if we're going to suffer, let's make sure we're not suffering for our stupid, boneheaded, sinful decisions. Instead, let's suffer for God and for Christ. So today, we're going to get this really powerful conclusion in our passage. Take a look, sneak peek at verse 19 here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing All right, well, that's where we're headed. That's where we're going to end today's passage. So let's jump back, and we'll start in verse 12. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. All right, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, well, in verses 12 and 14, Peter picks up from what we've already talked about over the last few weeks, and he picks up ideas, actually, he's been weaving in through the whole letter, ideas of fire and surprise and Christ's suffering. So let's take a look at what he's doing here. Back in 1 Peter 1, we're going to pick up a lot of these themes of testing and fire and rejoicing. So let's turn to, to 1 Peter 1, 6. Now, this comes right after the memory passage we're committing to memory of 3 through 5. 
And in verse 6 of chapter 1, we get this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, and now chapter 4 today. We see the themes of rejoicing in trials and being tested by fire. What Peter has been doing throughout this entire letter is calling Christ followers to not only persevere through suffering, but to find hope and a purpose in our suffering. That as God purifies us through suffering, it might lead to rejoicing. So here in the fourth chapter of the letter, Peter writes this in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, this is one of my favorite terms in the letters of the New Testament. This is Peter saying, I love you dearly. And I think also saying, God loves you dearly. You are beloved by God. He says, don't be surprised. Unlike the world who was surprised when you join them in their sin, if you remember two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter four, Peter says, hey, when you don't join the world in their sin, they will be surprised and then they will malign you. They will verbally attack and abuse you. Peter says, unlike the world who doesn't understand why you join them, don't be surprised when they then attack you for doing what's right. As God's children, don't be surprised when you face trials. And when God allows these trials to test you, don't be surprised. God has a desire for us to prove our faith, for us to show ourselves in the world that our faith is something that withstands the storms and the challenges. A church, think through the challenges you, your family, or your friends have faced for following God. Perhaps they've lost a job for making a decision that a boss disagreed with. Maybe it actually lost the company money to do what was right. And as a result, they lost their job. Uh, perhaps they've lost family or friends because they chose to follow Christ and their family said, if that is what that looks like, then you have no part of our family. Or perhaps you've lost a child. Perhaps because of what you believe of the sanctity of life and the blessing that life is, you brought to birth a child you knew would die shortly thereafter. And you had to say goodbye far too early. But you did that because of your faith and what you believed about life. These times in our lives should not surprise us. For we have a world that is opposed to us, and we have a flesh that is fighting for our attention. And as we learned last week in Ephesians 6, we have an enemy that is fighting to distract, discourage, and deceive us. So is it any surprise that we find ourselves suffering from one of many different angles? And it should not surprise us that our Heavenly Father could use those attacks, that suffering, for our good, to test and to prove our faith. Because here's the question that comes. When life gets difficult, does our faith crumble? Do the cards come crashing down? It wasn't worth the cost. Do we cast off our faith and go back to the sinful life we're in? Because at least there, if I go along with the crowd, I won't risk losing my job. I won't be called a fool. I won't be mocked. I won't be ostracized. So do we, are we tempted to cast off our faith? Or do we hold fast to our faith regardless of the cost? Do we prove that our faith is genuine and firm and established? 
Do we stand firm in the good news of the gospel? Well, Peter goes on to say in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, don't only be surprised that the world would attack you and that God might use those to prove your faith, but see these trials as a chance to rejoice and rejoice. A double rejoicing. Now, I want to kind of walk through what I think is going on here with these rejoicings. The first rejoicing is a rejoicing now. That as you faithfully follow in the footsteps of a Savior who suffered greatly in his life for following the will of the Father, it should not surprise us that we too will suffer and it will come at a cost to follow God in a world opposed to him. And so Peter says, rejoice in the midst of that now, in the, in the course of this life, in ongoing suffering, the Greek says here, this is not one time, this is day in, day out challenges and, and, and obstacles you follow, you face for following Christ. He says, rejoice, because you are following the footsteps of your Savior, who did the exact same thing. The second rejoicing is a, a rejoicing we get to look forward to. This second rejoicing happens when Christ's glory is revealed when he returns. And there is no question about it, church. Regardless of how difficult our life is here, there is a day coming at the return of Christ that we will begin rejoicing and we will never want to stop. Because there will be no more sin, no more death, no more disease. And we will see our Savior face to face. What an incredible day that will be. And in fact, the rejoice and be glad here, that be glad is just a Greek word for rejoice even more. Like you just can't miss the ability that we're going to have it and the call on our hearts to rejoice abundantly when we see our Savior face to face. And throughout this letter, Peter has helped us to fix our eyes on that hope that is to come. You might remember from our memory passage in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, we talk of this inheritance that God's watching on that we look forward to. So we rejoice now because we follow in the footsteps of Christ faithfully and we get look forward to rejoicing then when Christ returns. Jesus spoke of this future rejoicing when he spoke when he, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Take a look at this. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. It's going to sound very familiar. It's like Peter walked with Jesus for three years as one of those really close apostles or disciples. So here we go. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. There's that beautiful pairing. It's like God, had, or Jesus had said it to Peter and the disciples, and 20 years later, Peter can't get it out of his head. We get to rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so we've got a rejoicing now. We've got a rejoicing that we're looking forward to. And I'm going to argue that there's a third rejoicing, that this is not only a doubly rejoicing, this is a triply, is that even a word? Triply rejoicing? I'm not sure that's a word. But there is a rejoicing that may occur between now and the future when we see Christ, we may have yet a third chance to rejoice. It draws on themes we've seen in this letter so far. For we rejoice and are glad when our enemies come to faith in Christ. Do you remember that passage that was so difficult that we, Peter called wives to submit to husbands who weren't walking with the Lord that they might win some to Christ? There is this theme throughout all this book that, that we honor those who dishonor us, that we, that we subject ourselves to authorities that do not deserve it, that we might win some to Christ. 
And so in the Gospels, when Peter responded to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? And he said, you are the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said this to Peter. He said, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Father, let's not miss it, church, that anytime someone accepts Christ as Savior, it's because God has revealed himself to them, and they've had an opportunity to respond. And so we celebrate when not only God reveals his glory, but those who respond. I want to give you an example from Scripture and an example from a book I just read about what this looks like. What does it look like to suffer in such a way that we not only can rejoice in the present, we can not only rejoice in the hope that is to come, but we can rejoice that God might use the in-between to bring people to him. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison to the town of Philippi. That night as they were praying and singing, I mean, imagine that, Christians singing in prison, though imprisoned unjustly for what they're doing. They're singing in prison, and a great earthquake hits the prison, and the doors of the prison fly open. Now, I don't know about you, but I stop at this point in the story. I'm like, yes, God broke him out of jail. This is a prime opportunity to run for the hills. Get out of there. This is the hand of God saving you from an unjust government. But I think, rather than take a note from where my flesh would want to go, we might take a note from where Paul went in this story. Paul did not see this occasion as an escape, an invitation to escape from jail. Instead, he remained there in jail And the jailer awakes after the earthquake. And you might remember the story. According to Roman law, he lost these prisoners and he would be killed the next day. That was how heavy his burden, his responsibility was. They were lost under your watch. Sorry, we've got to teach all the other guards a lesson so you will be killed. So the the Roman soldier pulls out his sword to kill himself. Again, we might see it as another prime opportunity. God broke the jailhouse open. And now he's going to let the guard kill himself. And Paul and Silas and the rest of them can walk right out that front door. But what does Paul do? He says, no, wait, hold on. Don't, we're all here. Don't do that. Don't kill yourself. And so the guard grabs a light and he checks. And sure enough, everyone is still there, even though they had a prime opportunity to run away. And the guard, almost as if, what in the world is wrong with these people? They had an opportunity to escape. They had an opportunity to, to let me, the one who's imprisoned them, the one who's guarded them, maybe even beaten them, had an opportunity for me to kill myself. And they didn't take any of those opportunities. And the jailer falls at the feet of Paul and Silas, which is sort of what this picture is trying to get at. And he says, what must I do to have this life you have? What must I do to be saved? And that night, Paul preaches the good news, not to just the jailer, but his entire family. And they repent and believe in Christ and they are baptized. And you know what verse 34 of Acts 16 tells us? They all rejoiced. Paul, rather than being excited that God had broken him out of jail, rather than being excited that that his jailer who maybe unjustly treated him might be killed, Paul looked for the eternal impact of that moment and said, I would rather you become a brother in Christ than me get my freedom or you die for what you've done. Church, is that our desire? Is our desire that those who have mistreated us, those who treat us unjustly, would come to know Christ. This week, I finished reading a book that I've been kind of working my way slowly through over the last few months called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. It was first published in 1977, and to this day, it remains a bestseller on the list. Josh grew up with an alcoholic and an abusive father. In addition to that, if that wasn't worse or bad enough, when his mom would go off to work, mom would leave him with a friend who abused Josh until he was 13 years old. And so when Josh got to the local community college, 
He was firmly agnostic. There's no way there's a good God out there given my life. And not only was he firmly agnostic, he was determined to prove the crazy Christians at the community college wrong. And so he took an assignment for class and said, I'm going to prove that historically and philosophically, this is a bunch of bunk. That they don't know what they're talking about and they've got it wrong. And so Josh started to walk through the historical um, claims of Christianity, the philosophical claims of Christianity. And you know what happened? He found actually that they were right. That these crazy Christians were telling the truth. And he was the one that was wrong. And Josh became a follower of Jesus Christ as a result of that. And he walks you through that in his book. But the truth is that becoming a, a follower of Jesus Christ, this new life we have in him, radically changes us. And so after becoming a Christian, Josh met with the father who had physically abused him and his mom. Josh tells of locking his dad in the barn when he's drunk to keep him from abusing the family. The man he hated and despised, he met with and said, Christ has changed my life. Here's what Josh tells us in his book. He says, he told his dad this, God has taken away my hatred and he's given me the ability to love. And I love you, dad. His dad responded instantly in tears and said, son, if God can do in my life what I've seen him do in your life, then I want to give him that opportunity. The changes in Josh's dad's life were radical. Josh's took some time, but his dad's were immediate. From a lifetime of, of being drunk daily and drinking alcohol, he never drank again and was sober for the rest of his life. His dad went from a daily alcoholic and a mean, angry drunk to a man whose life was completely changed by Jesus Christ. That's our prayer, right? Our hope would be we come to Jesus and we share even with our persecutors, those who have abused us, who've done the worst to us, that they might come to know Christ, but there's no guarantee. And so there's one more story that Josh shares. Josh says, I knew that just as God had forgiven him, there was one more person I needed to forgive. That person was Wayne, the man who had abused me as a child. So Josh goes on to write, and here's a part of the quote. He said, I wanted Wayne to burn in hell, and I was willing to escort him there. The memories of the abuse scared me. But after coming to Christ, I knew I needed to forgive Wayne, just as I had forgiven my father. I confronted Wayne once again and said, Wayne, what you did to me was evil. But I've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and have become a Christian. I've come to tell you that Jesus died as much for you as he did for me and I forgive you. It was one of the most difficult things I've, he's ever had. He, uh, sorry, Josh wanted to write. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. It says, I could never have done it on my own. Josh goes on to share, your past can be overcome with God's help. You can laugh at Christianity. You can mock it. You can ridicule it. But the truth is, it works. It changes lives. It says, I should say, Jesus Christ changes lives. And if you trust in Christ, start watching your attitudes and your actions because Jesus Christ is in the business of changing lives. Church, this is the heart of Peter for us, that we would walk through the deepest, darkest seasons of our life in such a way that people would hear the good news of the gospel and see a life changed by Christ. He wants us to be people who would desire that even those who've done the deepest, most hurtful, harmful wrongs in our life, we would desire for them to come to know Christ too. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with a brother in Christ in this congregation, and he shared part of his story of coming to Christ with me, and it was such an exciting thing to hear. For years, he and his girlfriend had been living together, and all of a sudden, he placed his faith in Christ. 
and she saw a difference. And she came to follow Christ. And then they got married, and now they have kids that they've been raising and the instruction and insight and wisdom of the Lord. All because Christ came into his life and turned upside down. Christ is in the business of changing lives. And so I think in this passage, we are called to triply rejoice. Rejoice not only now that we get to follow in the footsteps of our Savior who suffered. Rejoice not only in what is to come, but rejoice that God might use our suffering to bring even our enemies to him. It's appropriate probably to stop here, church, and do a quick heart check. When you think of those who have hurt you the deepest in your life, have you forgiven them as Christ forgave you? Do you pray for new life in Christ for them? That's a hard thing to do. Do you hope that they might become a brother and sister in Christ, regardless of the pain they caused you? I could not blame you if you, like Josh McDowell, wanted to escort them to the gates of hell and escort them in and drop them off. We get that, right? All of us in this room can understand that. But there is something powerful about a new life in Christ that says, even to that person that I wanted to see in hell, now as a Christ follower, I want to see them as a brother or sister in Christ. If you're in a place where that's a really hard thing for you to get your head and heart around, I want to encourage you to do two things. I want to encourage you that over the next year, commit to pray. Commit to pray and ask the Spirit to to work on your heart this year, to give you a heart that would forgive even those who've hurt you the most deeply. And then pray that God would also give you a longing for their salvation. Now, I think hard things are best done in community, so don't do this on your own. The second thing I would challenge you to do is to find a spouse, an accountability partner, a, a ministry leader, a home team leader, or a friend, And ask them to join you in that prayer this year. Say, would you pray for my heart? There is just this part of my heart that's really hard for someone who hurt me deeply. And then would you join me in praying for their salvation? That the evil in their life might be turned to good for others. The evil that hurt me might become part of rejoicing of what God can do in a life. Well, then we go on to verse 14. And Peter reminds us that when we are insulted, we are blessed. This is one of those great ironies of Scripture that just doesn't make sense. We're blessed when we're insulted. Like, that's the opposite of insult, right? These things do not equal one another. And Peter says we're blessed because as God's children, God has given us his spirit to guide us, to strengthen us, to enable us not only to persevere through suffering, but also to rejoice in the midst of it. To rejoice in the midst of suffering is something the Holy Spirit alone can do. It's the joy that led Paul and Silas to worship God through song that night in prison. It's the Holy Spirit that has allowed 360 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ who faced severe persecution over the last year to do so with rejoicing in a way that even their captives, their captors come to know Christ. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that allows us as God's children to see even our enemies become brothers and sisters in Christ. And so God has placed his spirit in us, and Peter calls us to make sure that as a result of that, that we are suffering for the right reasons. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
What Peter's saying here is he says, don't suffer for your sinful choices, or as Peter's been reminding us throughout this letter, don't suffer for the way you responded to how they treated you. We've heard it over and over again. Don't revile for revile. Don't insult for insult. Don't uh, attack for attack. And what Peter may be saying here is, if they attack you, if they murder someone in your family, do not murder in return. That is not what we do. Honor killings may be a thing in Islam, but they are not a thing among the people of God. We are called to forgive our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So Peter said in chapter 2, lead such an honorable life among the Gentiles that God might be glorified. And that's what we're called to. And so when someone insults us, we don't insult back. When someone punches, we don't punch back. When someone responds in anger, we don't respond in anger. When we lose our job for standing firm in the faith, we don't complain about a boss who is unjust. We don't complain about a system that was broken. Instead, we tell people about the God we trust, even in those moments of uncertainty. God will take care of me and my family. Let me tell you about my Heavenly Father. When we lose family and friends because we've chosen to follow Christ, we don't do everything we can to to have a friendship here on earth with them. No, we, we tell them why Christ is so important to us that if it costs us their friendship and their family, we get it. Or we, we, it's worth it. It's worth that sacrifice. Because we would rather see our friends and family in eternity with us, with Christ, than spend a blip of our life here in community with them. Are we willing to give up an easy relationship here on earth that we might win some for Christ by being bold in our faith? It's worth noting here in verse 16 that this is one of only three times in Scripture that Christian is used. Uh, important, it's not little Christ, by the way. That was a myth that was going around for a while. It, it means follower of Christ. The first place it's used is Acts 11. In Acts 11, the gospel is going out to the world. It goes to Jerusalem. It goes to Samaria. And in Antioch, it's, it's marking it going to the ends of the earth. Antioch will be home base for Paul and all of his missionary journeys. And Acts 11 tells us that it's there in Antioch that the disciples of Christ were first called Christians, Christ followers. And then a few chapters later in Acts 16, we get the second example. Paul is meeting with one of his persecutors. He's actually speaking to King Agrippa. And King Agrippa kind of snidely says, would you in such a short time make me a Christian? And what I love about that is the unspoken answer from Paul is absolutely. Like, God can totally do that. I would totally want you to be a Christian in such a short time. But King Agrippa's heart is hardened. So up until this point, when Peter's writing in the the 60, 62 AD or so, Christian actually is a derogatory term. You follower of Christ, you foolish person. Why would you follow this, this sort of poor teacher from Jerusalem at such great cost? Why would you do that? And what I love here about Peter is he takes that on as a badge of honor. He says, I don't care what it costs me. I will proclaim to the world that I am a follower of Christ. Peter says as Christians that we suffer for lifting high the name of Christ, but let's not suffer for doing wrong. Suffer and glorify God in it. Don't suffer and say, well, that was my own foolish choice. What's interesting and important to know, and Peter's been building this case throughout the letter, is though we are saved, God does not turn a blind eye to our sin. Take a look at verses 17 and 18. They seem somewhat out of context or or disconnected from what we've been talking about. There's this idea of judgment here in these verses, and this judgment idea is that it begins at the house of God. Now, this is an important Old Testament truth. In both the the books of Ezekiel and Malachi, the people are pointing it at the enemy. They're pointing at everyone else and say, God, what are you going to do about that? And God says, no, 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 no. 
Judgment begins at the house of God with my people. You worry less about what they're doing. You worry more about your faithfulness and walking with me. We also see that in Proverbs 11, which is what Peter pulls out in this text. What I want us to notice is an important distinction here. We've just come out of talking about sins, right? Murdering, uh, thieving, that kind of thing. And, and, God, and Peter says, hey, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. All right, that's one type of judgment for sin. Then the second half of this verse gets us into it will, it, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel. This is not an apples-to-apples comparison. What is not happening here, and all the commentators agree, this is not divine judgment in the first part of this verse. This is discipline. That we have a Heavenly Father who's willing to discipline us when we make poor choices. He will use suffering when we make poor choices to call us back to Him. It's a really important distinction to make. The author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? God is holy, just, and righteous, but as believers in Christ, God is also our good heavenly father. And what Peter is saying is God will use discipline, judgment on your sinful actions to call you back to him. Jesus has called us to live, or God has called us to live as his people. And when we choose not to, he loves us enough to call us back, even if through suffering. And so suffering gives us an opportunity to rejoice. Suffering through our own sin gives us an opportunity to be disciplined, to be called back to walking in the faith. So church, there is actually tremendous encouragement here. I think sometimes we would get discouraged with a passage like this. Here's the encouragement. Not only does your heavenly father love you so much that he will not allow you to continue to walk in sin, he will do the hard work of calling you back to him through discipline and judgment. That's one encouragement. The other encouragement is he does not turn a blind eye to what's happening to you. Yes, our heart is that our abusers and our enemies would come to know Christ. But at the end of time, there is a judgment. And that's where the second path of this verse comes from. There is an outcome for those who do not choose Christ that will be their judgment. And it will be an eternal judgment. When speaking to his disciples in Matthew 13, Jesus spoke about this, this judgment to come. Here's what he said. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and they will separate evil from righteous. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For those of us who know Christ, there is discipline from a heavenly father, but there is no divine judgment because Christ has borne our sins and in Christ and through his blood, we are saved for eternity. But for those who disobey the gospel of Christ, those who refuse to accept the good news of the gospel, there is eternal separation from God and eternal punishment for them. And so as we suffer for Christ, We rest in the love of a heavenly father who not only sees our suffering, but will call us through suffering back to himself, will deepen our faith in him and our roots, and who will use our rejoicing in the midst of suffering for even our enemies to come to know him. Well, we close this chapter in today's section with what some have called the summary verse of the entire letter. If I was going to challenge you to memorize one more verse out of this letter, this would be it. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Essentially, what Peter is calling us to, church, is to be buoys that ring out in the storm. 
to be buoys that, that ring out and glorify God and proclaim the gospel in the midst of the greatest of life's challenges. Peter's calling us to trust God who is faithful. Peter is saying, don't stop doing good because you're in the middle of the storm. You're in the middle of difficulty. You're in the middle of suffering. Continue to do what's right, even there. And as you do, trust God's will. Trust his prescriptive will. Trust his permissive will. Trust that walking in his will will be right in the end. Whatever those wills are, and yes, the scholars debate about what will that is here. The truth is God is still sovereign over all and that we can trust our very souls to our faithful creator. Church, we are called to continue to do that which is right, that we might ring loudly the good news of the gospel to a world who desperately needs it. So today, I feel like the text leads us to two really important questions. The first one is this, are you ringing for Christ in the midst of life's storms? Now, there could be two reasons you're not ringing. One could be that you are a Christ follower, you've been given new life in him, but as we've talked about in this letter, you've decided to put on the old clothes. You've decided to walk in the passions of your former way of life. And in essence, what you've done is you've deadened that bell. Either you're holding the, the cannonball so it can't roll, or, or you're silencing the bell, but you're not ringing out. Because the truth is, you're not facing suffering for Christ. If you're facing difficulty at all, it's for a punishment for your wrong choices, for your sin. And so today, Christ is saying, hey, I gave you new life, this life that you were supposed to walk into, and you're not. You're walking your old life. Return to me. I will use what you're going through to prune you, to call you back, that you might ring out once more. But then there are those of you who aren't ringing at all because the truth is there is no bell in your life because you've never accepted Christ. You are, as it was, I think, verse 17 or 18, you are one of those who disobey the gospel of God. That God has given you the invitation to believe in him, to have new life in Christ, and you've refused thus far. For both of those, whether you are the new believer who's silencing your bell and living the rest of the world, or you're the one who's never believed, today is a great day to change that. In fact, today may be your last day to change that. So seize the moment today. And if you already have new life in Christ, return to him. Allow your heavenly father to do the hard work of pruning you and calling you back. And if you don't know the new life in Christ, today's the day to place your faith in him. Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans in Romans 10. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For those of you that have no bell in you, those of you who have disobeyed the gospel of God, this is the call that we have, that you have on your life. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And in him, find salvation and new life. There's one last question I think we need to ask for today, and this is for those of us in this room who have been Christ's followers, are you ringing for him? Are you trying to silence your bell? Are you trying to find calmer waters? What are you doing that's keeping you from ringing out the gospel and the good news of Christ? Are you choosing to trust God in the midst of suffering? Are you choosing to rejoice in that suffering because you are walking in the footsteps of your Savior and you have a future hope? Are you choosing to forgive as you've been forgiven? And are you praying that those who have hurt you might become brothers and sisters in Christ?
Those are just a few of the ways God calls us to ring out as his people in a world that needs him desperately. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Um, Lord, life in this world is not easy. Many in this room have been abused, have been hurt, by, have been deeply wounded by the sin of other people in their lives. Lord, I know of the, the people in my life that I have struggled to forgive because they hurt me so deeply. So Lord, I just would lead our church by doing the very thing that I'm asking them to do. Father, would you give me a heart to forgive those who have hurt me most deeply? Lord, would you go beyond that? And would you give me an ability to pray and desire that they would walk closely with you? Lord, that even through them, you would shine brightly. And Lord, would you shine brightly through me, through life storms? Father, I pray that for all of us in this room, that we would know you, that we'd ring out as buoys for you in a world being tossed to and fro, that people might come to know you and that we might rejoice with that good news of lives changed by the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the chance to be your children. You are a good, good father. Thank you for treating us as children. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.